Our Old Testament reading today comes from Genesis 37, verses 18 through 36. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's go throw him into one of these cisterns and we can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him in this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without us laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to the brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. And when he discovered Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will we do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message, look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, the king of Egypt, and Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Happy New Year. It's hard to believe it's uh, 2020. I took the last week off um, and I listened to the sermon from Dr. Bob Yarbrough and enjoyed it and trust that uh, the Lord was with you all uh, last week. And uh, I took the last week off to sort of a vacation and uh, study week to plan my sermon series for the next year. And I am excited to announce that we're going to be starting uh, in the book of Romans And uh, the book of Romans is uh, a serious undertaking for any preacher, and I did not want to do it just to do it, but I prayed and thought through it, and uh, Romans is uh, maybe the most, one of the most important books, maybe the most important book Paul wrote, and Romans is where we find all the the language about justification. Uh, interestingly, justification is only found really in two books of Paul, Romans and Galatians, because it deals with the tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians and the Jewish understanding or 
growing understanding of how Gentiles can be made right with God without becoming Jewish. And so this word justification is found almost exclusively just in those two books. And so um, sort of that context and dynamic is going to guide us as we approach the book of Romans. But that's not starting until February. Before we get there, as a warm-up to Romans, we're going to be spending uh, three weeks, and this is the first week in the book of Philemon. Now, you might want to know, okay, what's the connection there? The theme of Romans is really reconciliation, and that is exactly the theme of Philemon. Philemon is a book about reconciliation, and it's going to warm us up for Romans. So let's read Philemon. It's a very short book with only 25 verses, and we're going to read through them quickly before we get into our time in the Word here, our sermon. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed in you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit of you, from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, now we thank you for this letter to Philemon from Paul. We pray that you illuminate our hearts in the Holy Spirit, that we might 
have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might be convicted and convinced of your truth found here over the next three weeks as we move through the book of Philemon and transform us in the word that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There are not many people in the world today that would defend slavery. Even people who are racists know enough to denounce the institution of slavery, at least publicly. It's a blight on American history, and it's America's biggest hypocrisy that a nation founded on equality and freedom for the better part of two and a half centuries took part in the slave trade. In 1619, a ship with 20 prisoners landed at Point Comfort in Virginia, ushering in the era era of American slavery, and that was 400 years ago. The vast majority of African Americans in this country are the descendants of slaves. Think about that for a moment. Your black coworkers, your black neighbors, your black friends are here in this country because their ancestors were stolen, abducted, forcibly, and brought here against their will to be someone else's property for profit. Any idea that slavery was a kind and gentle institution is utter fantasy. When slavery ended, in the United States in 1861 at the end of the Civil War, it may have ceased legally as a legally sanctioned institution, but the conditions of blacks changed little. Without property, education, financial stability and connections, they largely remained on the plantations of the South, working as sharecroppers in the cotton fields living in shanty shacks. The violence received at the hands of their masters was perpetuated on each other, like children of abusive parents who grow up to abuse their own children. Anyone who says, get over it, slavery ended a long time ago, reveals a naive ignorance. The violence and poverty in many black communities in America prove that slavery's long-lasting effects are still felt in the present day. And yet, in a book of the Bible dealing explicitly with a slave and his master, or a master and his slave, one of Christianity's most powerful voices, the Apostle Paul, does not come outright and condemn the institution of slavery. Either our own morality has moved beyond the Bible, or we could be reading our own modern understanding of the world inappropriately back into Paul's context. Over the next three weeks, we will discover the answer to this mystery. The letter to Philemon, as we just read, is a very short book. It only consists of 335 Greek words. It was written roughly between 53 and 55 AD, just 20, approximately 20 years after the life of Jesus by the Apostle Paul, 
while he was in prison, most likely in Ephesus. Some people think Rome, but likely he was in prison in Ephesus. And it's addressed to Philemon. It's not Philemon, it's Philemon. I grew up saying Philemon. And Philemon is a faithful, devoted ministry co-worker of the Apostle Paul in the church at Coloss. And his home was the meeting place for the church there. In other words, there was a house church and it met in Philemon's home. And Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who ran away from his master. Now, as we read through the passage, there was a little parenthetical statement where Paul says something to the effect of, before he was not useful to you, but now he will be useful to you. The name Onesimus itself means useful. And so there's sort of a play there on Onesimus' name. But Onesimus ran away from his master Philemon, and while he's a fugitive, he finds himself We're not exactly sure, we're not positive, but he finds himself either in prison with Paul or at the end of his financial road in Ephesus, maybe he's run out of resources, and he hears that Paul, a close friend of his master, is in the local jail, imprisoned there, and he appeals to him to advocate for him. And in that exchange, Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul is not just going to intercede on Onesimus' behalf, but he gives him the gospel. If you use your imagination for a moment, you can imagine in the first century context of the ancient world, there are slaves everywhere. There are 55 million people in the Roman Empire, and ostensibly millions of Roman citizens have slaves. It is ubiquitous. Slavery is everywhere. And so Paul and the believers in Coloss, the Colossians, go into Philemon's home, and as they're worshiping, they're, the servant or the slave is serving them. And maybe it is not clear entirely if that person is a Christian or not. Clearly, Onesimus, Philemon's slave, was not until he had a personal one-on-one encounter with the imprisoned Paul. The letter to Philemon is unique in that it address, it's addressed to a person instead of a community of believers, i.e. the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Galatians. This is a letter specifically to a person, Philemon. And one of the things Paul does when he's writing to Philemon is he does not state, like in most other epistles, his apostolic authority, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that. He says, Paul, a prisoner. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And he does this for two reasons. One, Paul was literally in prison. In the Greco-Roman world, prison was a temporary holding station prior to a trial, not a final punishment. Paul was likely chained underground with no natural light, in pain, deprived, of basic necessities for living in horrendous conditions. A prison holding cell underground in ancient Rome did not have plumbing. You can use your imagination to think about how rank and dark and disgusting something like that might have been. 
And even though Paul says, I write this from my own hand, it is likely that in the dark he could not see and write, and someone on the other side or at the top of his cell is, Paul is dictating to. Write this, say this. Because he's in the dark. But secondly, he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, because it's a way of intentionally identifying himself by way of analogy with Onesimus' marginal condition as a slave. And when you think about it, a prisoner and a slave, their conditions and circumstances are very similar. Bound, the humiliation of being shackled, the inability to come and go as one pleases, the need for the support of another for food and water, and the uncertainty of one's fate made the two circumstances of imprisonment and slavery close enough that Paul hopes, it's a very elegant rhetorical move, that Paul hopes that by causing Philemon to see Paul not as the grand apostle, but as a prisoner shackled, that he'll start to see Onesimus differently. For all intents and purposes, Philemon is a faithful, loyal, zealous for Christ, sold out believer in Jesus. He was converted under Paul's ministry, which placed Philemon in a situation of indebtedness, not financially, but of love and loyalty. Paul was his spiritual father, and Philemon owed Paul. And this is vital if we're to understand the letter to Philemon, the sort of tridentine relationship between Paul, Onesimus, Onesimus, and Philemon, and Philemon and Paul. Paul is not Philemon's master, but he has a sort of power over him and influence and authority as the great apostle. Philemon was converted under him. At the end of the letter, you know, he says, when I come to you, you prepare a room for me. As I read this, I sort of chuckled because I thought that would never work today. I could never tell one of my parishioners, you know, when I, I could ask, but I could say, when I come to you, make sure there's a room for me. They would say, yeah, Jordan, you know, little Timmy, we just got him sleeping in his bedroom, so ah, it's not going to work, you know. But Paul makes demands of Philemon because he knows that the nature of that relationship, Paul has power over Philemon. Philemon's in debt to him because he was converted under his ministry, and Paul is like a father to him. So most important for this letter is that Philemon was a slave owner. Philemon was a slave owner. He owns Onesimus, and he has power. He has him in his power. Now, what is slavery? You know, it's been popular to distance slavery in the Bible from modern-day slavery or the African slave trade. And this definition that I'm about to read reveals that while there are differences, there are still many similarities. So it would be wrong for us to say, oh, yeah, biblical slavery or slavery in the Bible times, the ancient world, it had nothing to do with the African slave trade. There are differences, there are similarities. Look at this definition by Scott McKnight. Slavery, by definition, is a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force by a group in society which monopolizes political and economic power. Before I get the Bible off the hook, 
I want to put the Bible on the hook for slavery. Slavery is in the Bible. It's not just the ancient world. It's in the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. And there is no explicit condemnation of slavery anywhere in Scripture. At least not in the way our modern sensibilities would hope for. The first slave in Scripture was found in Genesis, and it was the slave girl, the servant of Abraham's wife, Sarah. When Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a baby, Abraham went into his wife's slave girl, Hagar, and she conceived and bore Ishmael, and there is nothing in Scripture at all to indicate that she was consensual in the entire process. And then Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, which is what Stacy just read as our Old Testament passage, himself was sold into slavery by his brothers. Hagar was an Egyptian slave to Hebrews, and Joseph was a Hebrew slave to Egyptians. And when God calls Moses to confront Pharaoh, it was so that he could emancipate the Hebrew people. The fact is, the story of God's people is a story of emancipated slaves. I mean, that is the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, which shapes the entire narrative of the Bible. That the story of the people of God in God's first mighty, incredible act of deliverance, which is the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, is a story of emancipated slaves. And when God gave the law, he told them, part of the law of Moses was telling the Hebrews how to treat slaves, and there is always this constant reminder, because you were slaves in Egypt. Because you were slaves in Egypt. But the idea of a slave in the ancient world was not incredibly precise. And that may be the biggest difference between slavery in the ancient world and modern slavery. Because there is utterly no ambiguity in the African slave trade. Human beings were stolen. Many of them died on the way here on ships thrown into the ocean. And the ones that came here were brutalized and oppressed for profit for their slave masters. Yes, it's true that some slaves lived in the house and were taken care of better than slaves that worked in the field, but it was a brutality. It was oppressive. And if you tried to escape, you were killed. There is no ambiguity in the African slave trade. People were brought here against their will and worked to make others profit, and if they tried to escape, they were killed. But historically, especially in the ancient Near East, slavery could mean all kinds of things. And this is where we are required to think and not to let our minds be captive to our emotions, but to use our minds for a moment, to use our faculties of reason and study, and to recognize that in history, that the word slave and the institution of slavery had a spectrum, all right? And within the spectrum of slavery in the ancient world, there were all sorts of different categories. Some people sold themselves into slavery because they were poor, they had no connections, they didn't own any land, and there was no way they could feed themselves, and so to become someone else's slave meant at the very least you had shelter and food. 
And in the ancient world, to be freed from your slavery did not necessarily mean an improved and better life. That did not even happen for African Americans here after the end of the Civil War. Their lives did not necessarily immediately improve even though they were free. And so slavery in the ancient world was complex, it was varied, it was along a spectrum. Some were bond servants for a particular amount of time to pay off debts, seven years, 10 years, 12 years. But of all the slavery in the ancient world, the most compassionate expression of it was found among the ancient Israelites. And in the law of Moses, there were stipulations for how to treat a slave. Again, it was a generic term with a spectrum. But what the law forbade was man stealing. Exodus 21, 16. Before I read this, before I go any further, I just want to say, it may not feel like I'm unpacking the book of Philemon yet. We'll get to there in the next two weeks. But I thought it was important today to give us an introduction and some context because one of the leading arguments against the Christian faith is that Christians and the Bible in general supports and advocates for slavery. That is a leading critique against the faith from people who don't believe because they read the Bible and they think the Bible is not, does not, at least in the way we would want, condemn slavery. And so it's necessary for us to unpack this a little bit. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So right out of the gate, the kind of slavery that most people in the modern world think of, which is essentially taking someone or purchasing someone who's been kidnapped against their will, is strictly forbidden in Exodus. In fact, the penalty for doing that was death. Now, why American Christians were unable to read this passage during the African slave trade is beyond me. I don't know. But here in this passage in Exodus, the idea of kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery is a crime punishable by death. But the law of Moses was not for the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It was for the Hebrews. And in the centuries in between the giving of the law and the Apostle Paul, slavery became a widespread, socially accepted, and culturally shaping institution. And Philemon, who is not a Jew, but a Gentile, is implicated in this widespread, socially accepted, culturally changing institution of slavery. He's implicated in its power. He's implicated in the authority and force used to maintain that system. He had political and economic power over Onesimus, his slave. How Onesimus came to be his slave, we don't know, and it's likely Paul may have not known either. It may have been insensitive to ask someone how you acquired your slave, or it may just not have been a question that was asked because, and what I'm about to say may sound shocking, but it's possible that Paul did not see slavery as a moral issue. Paul writes to Philemon, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. 
When we read the first seven verses of Philemon, it is filled with so much praise for Philemon. There is so much lifting up, so much affirmation, so much encouragement to who he is and what he is to the church and how much love Paul has for him because what's going to come next is a big ask, a huge appeal. And this appeal to Philemon is going to radically shape the course of history. But when we think about Philemon, and we think about the fact that he was a slaveholder, one of the things we ought to ask ourselves is, is it possible for us to be God-fearing, faithful followers of Christ and yet have huge blind spots in our lives? Ask yourself that right now. Is it possible for us to love Jesus to support the church, to believe in God's word and want to see sinners come to Christ and have blind spots in our lives. Areas of our heart that we don't know that we don't know are sinful or unfaithful. Blind spots that we're totally ignorant of, blind spots and yet be otherwise loving and faithful Christians. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think this is what Martin Luther touches on with his Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and a sinner. We are simultaneously justified in the sight of God, beloved by God on account of Christ, and at the same time, sinners, which means That for us modern people, it may not be slavery, but there may be some sin that is grievous to the Holy Spirit or to the people of God or that hurt others, parts of our character and personality, the way we come across the people that is deeply offensive and unloving, or at least appears unloving to other people that we're just not aware of. Simultaneously justified and at the same time sinners. Slavery, though now universally recognized for the evil it is, was as normal in the first century as automobiles are for us. And who knows that one day in the future, maybe, we'll be judged for our blind spots. Maybe the millions of gas-guzzling combustion engines we drive around the globe will pollute the earth beyond repair, or our great-great-great-grandchildren will be choking and judge us for cutting down the rainforests responsible for the oxygen we breathe. But for now, this is the world we live in. We live in a world of automobiles and pollution. We live in the world of junk mail, and Amazon trees apparently need to be cut down for that. This is the only world we know right now. And for Paul, that was the world he lived in. It was the only world he knew. Now we might think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I don't like this idea that like Paul doesn't, may not know that slavery or may not think of slavery in moral terms. I I don't like that. Here's what I wanna say. Paul was not Jesus and Paul was not God. 
There are things Paul knew, there are things Paul didn't know. Now, Paul doesn't endorse slavery. Paul doesn't say slavery is a good thing. And we say, well, we know that's not true. Can we trust any of Paul's writings? So it's not that, but it is a matter of what Paul is after. Is Paul after institutions in the world? Or how does he see to the gospel? Does the gospel change institutions? Or does it change human hearts? My argument this morning is that it is much more powerful in Paul's mind that the gospel changes relationships between people than it is for the transformation of global and world institutions. Because institutions are propped up by people with convictions and relationships and people who either have hearts for God or hearts against God. And that is what Paul sees as valuable. On some level, he's not concerned with slavery as an institution. He's concerned, and get this, listen to this, he's concerned with how the gospel transforms our relationships with each other. That is what Paul is concerned about. He's concerned with how the gospel makes possible and requires reconciliation with other Christians. And that, for Paul, is the issue. And as we go forward in the book of Philemon, that is what's going to color our interpretation and our application. That the gospel makes it possible for us to be reconciled first with God and then with each other and other Christians. And that is ultimately the issue behind what's happening here. Because the lordship of Jesus Christ is ultimately about changing people and transforming hearts. And when people's hearts are transformed, listen, they may not be equal in their station in life or socioeconomically or socially or professionally. I think Paul had enough foresight to realize that as long as the world continued, that there would always be types of inequalities. Not that they're just, but they would always exist. But for Paul, for Paul, when the heart changes, people who are in disparaging life circumstances or are unequal on some footing can be equal in Christ. Are we, are we equal in Christ? Because I know in this room there are people who come from different backgrounds. Some people are more educated than others. Some people make more money than others. Some people come from very prestigious backgrounds. Some people come from very shameful backgrounds. But in Christ, we're all one, and in Christ, we're equal. You're my brother, you're my sister. Me being the pastor here, even in this context, doesn't make me any better than anyone here. I am no more important than anyone here, and neither are you. We are equal in Christ, because in Christ, and in Christ alone, God is no respecter of persons. I encourage you this week to read Philemon. It's only 25 verses. I know this is a really weird way to end a sermon, but I want to leave us with a cliffhanger. Right? This is the cliffhanger. I wish it was more explosive or nail-biting. But this week, read Philemon. It's 25 verses. Make notes. 
ask questions, write them down, and see if they don't get answered in the next couple of weeks as we move through the book of Philemon. There's much, much more to be said. In fact, I haven't hardly said anything about the book of Philemon. I just gave you the background. But I hope our hearts are able to wrestle with, this morning and this week, the tension here in this book. Because there's a lot of tension in the Bible. The Bible is not just some beautiful cookie cutter book that leaves everything in a nice little package with a bow on it. The Bible asks us to wrestle, to deeply wrestle with the issues of our world, the issue of society, the issues of our hearts and our families. And so this week, I want you to wrestle. I want us to wrestle through the book of Philemon. Let's, let's give thanks and pray. Father, thank you now, O oh God, for this uh, beautiful letter a sort of a literary masterpiece that Paul writes to Philemon. I pray, Lord God, that if we've been troubled, that we might stay troubled this morning. Maybe troubled by what we've heard. Maybe approaching Paul or the scriptures in a way that we're not comfortable with. Father, help us to search the scriptures, for in them is your truth. We know, O oh God, that you are no respecter of persons, but it is only in Christ that that manifests itself. It is only, O oh God, through your body, the church, that that is manifested, and it is manifested imperfectly. Help us now, O oh God, to wrestle and contemplate these things as we look to you and your lordship as the head over not only our lives, but the lives of every human being that ever lives, O oh God. We thank you now in Jesus' name.